Hi, this is Paul Anderson, the author of Bones Made to Be Broken, How We Broke, and the upcoming novella Standalone, and you're listening to The Legends of Tabletop. Everybody, I want to thank uh, thank everybody for checking this out. I want to thank Paul for for coming in and hanging out with us today and uh, talking about his book. It is a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get print, yeah, yeah. Before we get to that, how are you doing? Are people healthy at home? You know how how have things been for you uh, during this upheaval that we've been experiencing? You know, I tend my wife. My wife and I laugh. She she's like, "You're a homebody," and I used to really like fight that distinction. And then in the past six months, I was like, "Oh yeah, I really am." <laughs> um, and I have always been kind of a homebody. Not that I don't mind going out and stuff like that. Like I used to go out to shows and stuff. And um, I am fairly social with my little circle, but I've never had a problem with just like I'm gonna hang out and read. Um, so when everything came down, it wasn't a big deal to be like, "Oh." I'm in my house. I like my house. I, I put my stuff there. But um, it was at, at my day job as a teacher. So that was a bit uh, a bit of a transition, let's say. Um, I, you know, everyone's fine. My wife is an essential worker. She she works in uh, food production, uh, meat plant, organic mm. plant. My wife's a vegan, though. That's what's funny. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> She's really good at her job, oddly. <laughs> um, but the real concern, obviously, is like I have a nine-year-old. Well, she's nine now. Um, so, you know, that was some socialization that was we had to figure out, you know. And to be safe and things like that, I ended up utilizing. I was on – if they – you remember back like in the 90s when they would charge you minutes for like using Sprint? Before cell phones being – they would just charge you like anytime minutes on your landline. Yep. Like if yep. they did that with fucking internet – like I would have made the every employee of say CenturyLink probably Jeff Bezos rich, um, <laughs> because we were just on it. She was you know skyping with their friends, trying to keep vaguely social, because it, hanging out with me is not the same socializing, <laughs> right? Um, but other than that, man, it's 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 yeah, it's going, going. Well, that's good. I I'm sort of in the same boat in that you know. If I'm not, you know, at the gym or, you know, whatever, like I'm probably home because I'm either playing a game, editing a game, you know, watching the, you know, hockey's back on or, you know, before yeah. COVID, you know, hockey stuff. So like I'm, I'm hanging around. Hasn't been like a really big change for me either, which is a blessing and a curse, I guess. I mean, I'm still working, which I'm thankful for. And, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I got to go in. So like there's, you know, risks associated with that and whatever. But yeah. Keeping on, keeping on, you know, like what, what else can you do? You know, I, I, you know, I have no idea. And that's why like hobbies are such a big thing. Like tabletop gaming. I have, and I said this to you privately is I have no real experience with, but it is yeah. its own industry. And as I've gotten older and 
and it kind of permeates all different kinds of genres. So I, as I've gotten more into the my industry, almost everyone I know plays tabletop games. And not that I've had anything against it ever. It's just I was never my thing. And But I hadn't seen it since the 80s. My brother was a big, he was old school D&D. Right. Um, and then, it, like, when he grew up and moved away, and I never kind of picked up on it, uh, I just like, oh, it's just, it's it's there. And then I, in the past three or four years, it I've kind of become aware of how big the culture is. It's massive. So, yeah, a hobby or something like that, or, you know, an interest like that, it's definitely been a saving grace, I imagine, for a lot of people. Because if you had nothing but maybe surfing Netflix, how fucking sh- I, I hate would hate <laughs> the retrospection that would come about when you have no other interest than watching, you know, uh, rewatching House on Netflix. That yeah. was your big thing, because the rest of your life was busy being out there in the world. Doing so your interior life was a little lacking. I'm not saying that as a, it comes off really snotty. I think. I'm probably sounding snotty, and I don't mean to sound snotty, but so if nothing else, like having uh, interests like tabletop gaming or in the horror genre, it's like we have something to hang on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what was it? I mean, your brother played. Did, what 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 was it that like didn't capture your attention at that time? It just wasn't, just didn't really grab you at all or yeah, there wasn't any like one particular thing where you're like eh nah I don't, I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm. <laughs> first thing is he's nine years older than me mm-hmm. so um I, I i i came at the end of a marriage i was i was the, i was a year after i was born my mom was out mm-hmm. uh, and she took me with her so there was that age gap um so my experience would be like we'd be living after my mom left my dad and my and we my brother and I took turns visiting each other's parents because he lived with my dad, I lived with my mom. Um, when he would be with my mom, like on Saturday nights, he would leave the apartment. I'm like, where's Philip going? And she'd be like, he, he's with Ray and Jerry. Or Ray, what the fuck was the other kid's name? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's 34 years ago. And one time I remember they were playing, our apartment building was like four stories and it had like the old school kind of stairwells and the basement stairwell where which led to the storage containers for everyone he would be playing with his friend rob um and i think rich i think that's his name um and that was like oh okay that's what my brother does so that was my that was literally my only experience um for me and it sounds especially in 2020 it sounds so weird i'm not a gamer on any level i play board games with my daughter occasionally and i have an xbox 360 but like i have two games i i just i for <laughs> me i i it never it never just caught my eye and not on any level like beyond playing you know monopoly with my kid or when i was a kid playing clue with my mom mm-hmm. i just never played games um, I wasn't, and that it's not that I was like a big jock. I'm so far from a jock. I played soccer poorly, um, <laughs> very poorly. Um, it was just, it was never something that was like that thing that catches your eye. And it's, it's not that I miss it, but I'll hear like my, uh, well, my, my, a co-writer on a book I wrote, uh, how we broke Bracken McLeod. He's into the tabletop gaming. I've since discovered and he'll post pictures occasionally on social media of various games he's into or he's heard about. I'm like, that actually looks interesting. But the idea of having, but the process of developing all the characters and how it all works. I'm like, I, I, I I'm going to go read a, you know, Ray, uh, you know, a Neil Gaiman book, you know, or, uh, 
I'm going to go play a Tom Petty song on my guitar or something. It's just my head just kind of skews the other way. Even yeah. with video games, I'll sit there, I'll put one on. I'm like, I haven't played... Uh, it's, uh, what's one of the games I have? Jesus Christ. Um, Wolfenstein, The New World Order, like whatever the one is on Xbox 360. And I'll be like, I want to play this. And 15 minutes later, I'm like, I am done playing this. <laughs> It's just like it's a. It seems to me like a completely different mindset, and that's really cool because it seems like it's its own world, you know. Whereas most other interests, whether it be music or reading or writing or the other arts, it's a world that is very permeable. Whereas tabletop gaming itself seems very contained. Um, it has almost its own biosphere kind of thing. Kind of sure, yeah. And you can enter into it. It's not like there are border guards or stuff like that. But it, it it it's very much chugging along on its own thing. And it doesn't really need the oxygen of new people to survive, if that makes sense. To me, as an outsider. Uh, yes and no. I mean, you have the old guard that still plays. You know, some still play the old, you know, OSR stuff. Um, but with, with 5th edition, um, you see, and you know, with the advent of stuff like Critical Role, you're seeing a lot of new people get into the hobby and they're bringing a lot of, you know, new ideas, new outlooks. Um, you know, there's a big hubbub right now on, on Twitter. Um, I don't remember what her name is uh, or what her Twitter, Twitter handle is, but uh, there was discussion about, you know, people with handicaps, you know, having a wheelchair, you know, a combat wheelchair in D and D and like, Oh, you can't, that's still, you can't have that. Blah, blah. You know, so like it, it, you know, you, you do need that new influx of people to come in and challenge, you know, some of these preconceived, like, Oh, you can only do it this way. Well, no, no, that doesn't you can do it any way you want to do it. You know, like it, that, that's not, you know, you need to be outside of the box. You know, just, oh, of course. yeah. So, oh, yeah. I, I, and that and that's a very true statement. I, it makes complete sense to me. It's like if you didn't have new pe- new blood in other arts and other interests, it would be just a rep- repetition of what's come before. So that makes complete sense. Yeah, I have to go back and throw a link in the show notes for that now. While I'm thinking about it later, I'll have to do that. Well, it's funny you mentioned you're throwing some terms out there. I'm like, wait a minute, what's that? Was I crook roll? I have no idea what that is. But OSR, I know because of comic books. Because they used to, back in the 80s, used to advertise OSR game books. And I, and I, and I used to, and I, it wasn't until I started recollecting my old childhood comic books that I realized what those were. Because when I was a kid, I'd look at them and be like, what are these weird advertisements? This isn't for <laughs> Bubble Yum. Um, and now I, I think the pictures are cool, but I would have no context of what they were. And now I'm an adult, I'm like, oh, that's, that's. A role-playing game. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Critical Roles, so it's the uh, the D&D, uh, you know, sort of flagship uh, podcast and stream. Okay. Uh, they've got a bunch of voice actors and, and um, you know, industry people inside doing it. They're, they're huge on Twitch. They had a, you know, Kickstarter made, like, I think it was, like, $12 million to make, like, an animated feature based on, you know, campaign that they were running. They have their own uh, book out you know, p- published by Wizards of the Coast. And it, it's, they're huge. I mean, it, it's a huge, huge thing. And it's, it, and it's a mixed bag, right? So like for someone like us, who's a small streamer, it's like, oh, well, fuck, that kind of sucks. But it does bring new eyes and does bring new people into the hobby. So that, you know, overall is definitely a good thing. 
but that, and that's and that's kind of my point. It's like it has this huge. It's almost its own dimension. That all this stuff I I didn't hear any of this, and it's like twelve million dollars. <laughs> that's a huge. That's a chunk of change right there. Yeah. Whereas like even in something that you would think is kind of um, separate or di- or separate from mainstream life, for lack of a better term. That's not the real term I want. Like the art world. Everyone's heard of though that prick who made the kidney bean art sculpture and thing in Texas. And then bought the type of paint that, you know, is so it absorbs all light. Why? Because of Tumblr and shit like that. It, it permeates into social media. Whereas I'm like, what? They, they make what? <laughs> 12. What? Yeah. I didn't know Kickstarter could go that high. <laughs> yeah. Which probably makes me sound like such a fucking peasant. But, you know, I'm not a gamer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, there, there have been some pretty big Kickstarters for gaming. Um the John Wick 7C, I think, was was one of the biggest. I don't know that it was the biggest, but it was one of the biggest um, Kickstarters for an RPG. And it was like, it was 2.1 million or something like that, or 1.2 million. It was a couple of years ago. It was, I mean, it was big, you know, for a new that's edition. Insane. Like, wow, that's crazy. That is. And he's a super nice guy, too. He's, he's here in Arizona. He lives up in Phoenix. I've met him, uh, you know, a handful of times. We've got a really nice convention in Tucson called Rincon. And, yeah. you know, all the local guys come down. So, um, you know, uh, um, fuck him. And um, Shane Hensley, who does Deadlands, which is a Savage World system. You know, board game designers and stuff all come down. So it's a really, really nice community here in Arizona. I'm really lucky out here as far as that stuff goes. I mean, it, it was like I said when I got into start getting into the industry is when I of, of horror fiction that are writing, freelance writing that I realized that gaming hadn't kind of disappeared in the eighties with my brother. It was very much uh, like I first time I ever heard of Gen Con was I think twenty ten, and I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> I was like, there's there's a whole convention just to games like really like not video games but like tabletop games because again i'm not much of a gamer in any sense of the word and and my friends this was a writing group i was in for a few years they kind of looked at me like are you damaged (laughs) like what is wrong i'm like i don't know i played sonic the hedgehog until i was in college yeah yeah not that i have anything against it it's just like wow that's so that's fascinating to me because it's so different than um than what i had it, you know, it kind of opened up the board, uh, the perimeters a little bit. I was like, oh, my horizons have been expanded. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, as a writer, right? Because the, the coolest thing about, you know, playing games is yeah, dice rolling is fun and whatever, but it's telling really fun or dramatic or whatever, but like these cooperative stories, yeah. which like, you know, you think as a writer to be like, oh, yeah, like I, I want to like, you know, get into that and sort of like you know, play in that space, but you and don't, it's just really weird. <laughs> I, I, I know. And I know some really great writers, um, who've worked in both. I don't know if he's worked in tabletop games, but I know he's worked in video games. Um, Cameron Suey. Um, he's a really great writer. He worked on one of the tomb Raider video games. And I don't know if he's done tabletop. I think he might've not sure. And because yeah, the story, the story setup. I mean, tabletop kind of has video games beat with that. They've been doing expanded mythologies and world building for decades mm-hmm. but it's like oh wow but again i'm like I, I i i i can't it's like math with me like i'm like wait how does how <laughs> it, it's so bizarre that i find myself wondering it's like why don't i get it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but well, I, I, tr- 
don't. I, I find it fascinating, but I don't. Yeah, no, I I tried to go back and play second edition, you know, after a long pause, and you know they had to hit armor class zeros, you know, Thacko. And, you know, we started doing it. I don't know if it was the GM or if it was just, like, the mindset. I'm like, I don't understand what the fuck is happening right now. Like, this makes no sense to me. It's funny because I remember um, my daughter loves Teen Titans. This is kind of a roundabout anecdote. My daughter loves Teen Titans Go. And I love Teen Titans Go because it's so fucking ridiculous because I read the comics when I was a kid. Um, and they, I was watch, rewatching an episode with her this morning while she was eating her breakfast. And it was the one where they get pulled into a tabletop game. Oh, and nice. Rob's really into it, and none, no one else understands what's going on. They all just want to ride a dragon, and I am, I am literally Beast Boy in that episode because I have no <laughs> idea what's going on, and I'm just like, I want to be that guy. What? I don't know why. Why? I just want to ride the dragon. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, I never got into that one. I watched the original Teen Titans when it first came out. Yeah. And and then like it it got kind of weird, and I was like, eh, this is probably not not for me. <laughs> um, I my daughter borrowed like a DVD season from the library of the original one. She liked it as well. She likes them both. So when they did, they recently did one where it was the original Teen Titans, the one from two thousand three versus Teen Titans Go. Mm-hmm. And her and I were both excited to watch him. I, our, my wife was like, what is wrong with you two? I'm like, but this is hilarious. <laughs> and I can explain who these characters are to my daughter. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Nightwing. Hmm? His real <laughs> name's Dick Grayson. Did, so are you young enough to have missed out on the Batman in the animated series? No, I'm 36. So I was right there. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. I started actually it was Batman, the animated series and X-Men that got me into comic books. I mean, oh, I went nice. down to comic books for a little bit. I moved around a lot as a kid. I think that also might have had something to do with the fact that games just don't hold my interest because we were too busy moving all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, but no, it was like Batman the Animated Series and the X-Men the Animated Series. The, you know, the Fox Saturday morning back in the early 90s, 92, yeah. 95. Yep. Man, that was my jam. Animaniacs. Like, oh, my! I, I got my daughter in Animaniacs. My wife was like, what is wrong with you? Nothing is wrong with me. This is amazing. They have a Prince anal fingering joke. Come on. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I'll take your word. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> there was an episode where they're deciding to, they're going to um, solve a mystery on a cruise ship. And um, Yakko goes, search for Prince. And so Wacko does something. And then Dot shows up and he, she's literally carrying Prince in her arms. I found Prince! And Yakko goes to her and says, no, finger Prince. And there's a beat where she looks at the camera and she goes, I don't think so, and tosses him <laughs> over. And that was a joke in a cartoon aimed at children. Yeah. Well, so it's almost a throwback to like, the, the, you know, the old cartoons like Bugs Bunny and all that stuff. I mean, they had the wackety schmackety do kind of like physical comedy and stuff, but they were not written for kids. No, no. They had, you know, they had a Mice and Men re- alluded to in one of them. And I'm like, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Don't go look at the rabbits, George. <laughs> um, you know, and, I, and it's funny. I watch them now as an adult. And now I because my mom used to enjoy watching cartoons with me. She would, you know, she worked all the time. But Saturday mornings, if she got up early enough, um, she would come downstairs and I'd have my cartoons on. She'd sit there and watch. She'd start laughing at shit that I wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And she'd be like, how is that in there? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. 
what is yeah. that? And she'd be like, I'll tell you when you're older. And she never did. <laughs> so I had to figure it out on my own. Um, I was a latchkey kid. Um, but no, I am of the age where like Batman, the anime series, X-Men and stuff like that. That was like, that was uh, the first time I ever really got into anything fan based. You know, it's like, oh, comic books. I actually, I moved around a ton. So like what are comic books I had? I wasn't a collector. Like that was the 90s comic boom. I was just reading because I liked the stories. Um, but I lost them all because you move a dozen times before you're 16 years old. You're not holding on to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I've recently, in the past few years, I've been rebuilding my collection. And I've actually expanded it. Like all those issues I wasn't allowed to get because my mom didn't have the cash that week. You know, I was like, oh, I can buy this now. And it's cheap because the comics in the 90s are worthless. Um, yeah. I know it. <laughs> and I know, right? And um, and I found it was because uh, Batman the Anime Series premiered in, I think, 92. And so right around that time, and that was right around the time Batman Returns came out, because that came out in the summer of 92, which is weird because the story takes place in fucking Christmas. Uh, yeah. And I had, there was a, uh, you know, this is back in the day when comic books used to be at grocery stores, which I still miss. I love mm -hmm. comic book stores, but there's something about going to a grocery store and seeing the spinner rack. That was amazing. Um, and, I, and there was a Batman issue. It was the first comic I ever owned. And I lost it, of course, because I was... This is late 91, early 92. So I was like seven or eight, um, maybe going on nine. And I recently found it and I found such joy in it. And I even called my mom like, I found the first comic I ever owned. And she was like, <laughs> so I was like, fuck you, mom. <laughs> um, this is why I don't dedicate a book to you. You know, right. <laughs> no, that's really cool to, to be able to, to reach back and find that and, you know, be able to experience that wonder again. Yeah. <sighs> It's, it's a double-edged sword because too many people, I think, get way too into – you were talking earlier in terms of gaming like, you know, there's a big thing about, well, what about a battle-ready wheelchair, you know, in a game there are people poo-pooing the idea because it's not the way it's always been done. And I think nostalgia plays a big part in that too. There is – it's like, well, yeah, it, what was great was great because it's your childhood. Mm -hmm. But – you know, there are stuff that's great now. Um, I recently got back into comics, not because they suddenly interested me more just by looking at them. But um, a friend of mine, his uh, name's Lonnie Nadler. He started writing for X-Men. And I was like, that's fucking amazing. That's cool. So I, so I picked up an issue and I was like, where have I been for 25 years? Um, <laughs> I, I read comics again. And my wife's like, my wife's very sympathetic because I'm like, hey, it's I'm not. I don't have a gambling addiction, I guess. It's better than that. Um, <laughs> buy 20 bucks worth of comic books, better than $500 worth of scratchies. And it's, you know, but the comics I read now don't take me back to my childhood. I, I've kind of filled out my childhood collection. But there, I always kind of feel that worry. I'm like, Ugh, am I dwelling? Am I dwelling a little bit? <laughs> uh, but you know what? I, I think that that kind of speaks to the the cultural sort of, you know, that's not a valid thing. Like, that's a kid thing. Like, there's no yeah. intrinsic value in, you know, a comic book or a, a game or whatever. And that's such bullshit because there's so much, you know, effort and expertise that goes into that stuff. And, you know, great stories that are being told that that has its own value. Hmm. And I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. I do think there are people who 
hold on to the past instead of using it to build towards the future. And I always kind of worry, like, because I, like I said, my kid, my childhood was not, it wasn't a bad childhood, but it was tumultuous. So, mm-hmm. like, comic books were a safe haven for me. Um, right. You know, when I got older, it was like horror no- novels were a, a safe haven for me. Movies were a safe haven for me. Punk rock was a big safe haven for me when I hit puberty. Thank Christ I discovered punk rock. Um, so, but and but there are people who kind of latch onto it and don't let that progress. I do agree. There are people who kind of poo-poo nostalgia at all costs because they do kind of see it as a kiddie thing, which I reject out of hand because again, like you just said, like these people are artists, they're writers, they're creators, they are building something. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just to entertain, but there's nothing better telling a story that's entertaining. Yeah, you can throw a little message at them if you want, but if they don't even get the message and they're just enjoying the story, fuck, they enjoy the story. Let them have it. Um, so no, I, I do agree with that, but I do think there are some people who kind of hold on and don't allow that to progress. Like I said, those like you were mentioning Tabletop King, those people are like, what? We've never had battle-ready like accessibility for wheelchairs. That can't happen. Why not? Well, we've never done it. So? Yeah. <laughs> Means so, it can't be done. Yeah, exactly. But that drives a lot. That's not just nostalgia. That, that's the way it's always been done, is, or this way it's always been viewed. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you can always take it the other way. Like, you know, I don't know where you fall on the whole Zack Snyder Superman's... Uh, uh, thing, but I do tend to think I'm like, dude, you're trying way too hard to justify liking a man who wears his underwear on the outside. <laughs> um, it's Superman. He's yeah. not the Punisher. Well, and that was the, I didn't see it, but you know, if you try to make Superman a darker hero than Batman, you probably don't understand the character. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of it. And Superman and Batman can only be so dark before it's just like. It's like parody. Um, yeah, yeah. Like I love Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, in spite of the fact that Frank Miller flat out was saying, "I'm making a fascist superhero." Here you go. Mm-hmm. And people like that's a great idea. What fascist? I don't know. What <laughs> I mean, like, dude, it's not even subtext. Um, yeah. But uh, and I love the story. I ha- I'm looking at the trade paperback right now, but I'm like, Batman. Um, like. Scott Snyder recent his recent run on Batman. It's great. But he takes something that's dark and he has like a bat family, you know? Like yeah, he's yeah. away from that. You can't so there are some people who also kind of re we're all, this is a very circular. Um who <laughs> look at that nostalgia or look at things that are perceived as kitty and then they try too hard to justify it. Like me personally, I'm not a Zack Snyder uh, stan at all by any stretch of the imagination, just because Dude's way too serious for me. And if you haven't noticed, I'm a bit sarcastic. So, but at the same time, I would never dismiss, like, even if Superman is, like, kind of a cornball, eh, it's entertaining cornball. Cat's America's cornball is shit. No one calls him Kitty. Yeah. Well, they lean so hard into that in the movies, too. Like, it, it's, it, it really makes, it, it give, really gives, gives you the feeling of that character. Yeah. They sort of lean into that, like, archetype of 50s sort of you know things have to be this way and this is right and this is wrong and there's no no gray it's all black and white and and having that and that is natural and and in terms of storytelling that's natural conflict because he's in a world that isn't like that so that's what makes him compelling making superman grim and gritty and depressed it's like all right emo we did (laughs) spider-man 3 build from that right right Ugh. But b- before we get off of comics and cartoons and all stuff, 
Did you watch the original um, Avatar Last Airbender? No, I have. N- I only. Oh just my heard god! It. I I only just heard about that. In all fairness, like I heard about it re- re- briefly when M Night Shyamalan apparently ruined it. Oh, fucked uh, it all up. But the only my knowledge of it, and this is gonna sound ridiculous, is watching the honest trailer on it. Because mm. Honest Trailers did one on La- the Avatar The Last Airbender. Because I think Avatar, I think of James Cameron being an asshole. Um, <laughs> yeah. doing a, making a movie that everyone that made a billion dollars and no one remembers now. Um, so I know I've my sister-in-law was into that kind of stuff. She's like, uh, and I don't know if that's considered manga. I know it's on Nickelodeon. I don't know if it's considered part of manga. I don't know. Um, well, so it would be more anime, right? So manga would anime, be the, anime, the, the comics. I think I, I think so, kind of. You know, I, I think it, it falls loosely under that umbrella, I would say. That came out, what, late 90s, early aughts? Uh, it had to be early to mid-aughts because my kid was born at that time. Okay. So, so yeah, I don't maybe uh, two thousand three, two thousand four, maybe. That was when I was ending college. Um, hmm. So and I was watching almost nothing at that point. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, not, that's not true. That's not true. I had my apartment which didn't have cable, so I had like a handful of DVDs because DVDs used to be a thing, and um, uh, I had a copy of Super Troopers. Oh, and, great movie! Uh, don't tell my wife that um, because <laughs> I only had so many. Like we would, she would come up like, um, she didn't go to my college. We've known each other since high school, but so she, I, she would periodically come up and spend the weekend at my apartment and there'd be, you know, there's no TV. I'm out in the middle. My college was out in cow country and shit like that. We're not big partiers. We like, we, by the time we were 21, 22, we're like, we did the party scene. We're good. Um, so we'd watch that on a loop to the point that she, when the sequel came out, she refused to sit down and watch it she's like no <laughs> and i'll and i'll sometimes drop i'm one of those people who drops lines constantly it's yeah, like we do too. Kid. Yep. and my wife will just look at me like why just why <laughs> why it's I, it's almost like vietnam for her um, <laughs> <laughs> she goes back and she just hears echoing in the back of her mind the snozberries taste like snozberries um <laughs> So I I missed out on I missed out on a lot like mid from in all fairness from the time I went to college in 2002 until literally my daughter was like a, like turning one most media I kind of missed unless it was like B level horror movies like the one thing I can say I'm like I discovered that most people don't know about is like um, behind the mask the rise of Leslie Vernon. And I'll tell people that, and they're like, what's that? I'm like, it's the greatest slasher of all time, you fools. Um, but most other things, unless it was music or things like that, I kind of missed out on a lot of stuff. Because I was too busy finishing up college and getting my teaching career going. Right, right. Well, it, it's on Netflix, and and I will say it was one of the best shows to ever be on TV. I, it really? was, It was amazing. Like... It was aimed at the kids, but like it had a message and it was well written and it was funny and you had your poignant moments in it. It, it was fantastic. I mean, it, it was it was amazing. Cool. Like I said, my my experience with it beyond hearing the M Night Shyamalan ruined the live action movie was like I said, the Honest Trailer it came out actually not too long ago. I think it's like a week or two ago, and I was like, hey, I've heard of that. I think 
I don't get the jokes they're making because it's uh, the honest trailers references the actual plot of the show. But I'm like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you have time, it's it's definitely worth worth a watch, and and your kid would probably enjoy it too. I mean, it was, yeah. It's funny, and you know this going into adulthood, because things kind of, you hit blind spots. More and more blind spots as you get older, and the world becomes more interconnected. And I always feel vaguely like Steve Buscemi. I feel like the meme, meme of Steve Buscemi going, what's up, fellow kids? Yeah, um, yeah. So, and certain things I just lean into it, because fuck, I don't care. Um, and other times, I'll be almost the polar opposite. I'll be like, in the classroom, I'll be like, all right, kids, who's heard of Jawbreaker? No one? Great. We're going to listen to 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. Uh, <laughs> you can't understand the notes? It doesn't matter, and that's the point. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's cool. All right. Well, so maybe we should talk a little bit about your writing. So, I mean, since you're sure. here, and, you know, we're going to, you know, try to push a book here. Uh, when did when did you first start to write? When, when did you first get that itch? Um, I've this is gonna. I, I I'm gonna sound like one of those biographies fr- that writers use that self-publish, um, and and do their own covers. Um, but I've always had an interest in writing. Um, it really didn't take off as something of a focus, like beyond something. Hey, I'm good at this. Because when I was a kid, I was drawing comic books with my friend Aaron. Yeah. Um, as something serious until I was 15 in high school. And I was in this creative writing class because at that point I was in the horror fiction and stuff like that. And I had heard rumblings that there'd be like we'd be reading Stephen King stories, but it was also a writing class. And um, so we had to write stories and I wrote terrible stories. The only one that was memorable is a guy who um, kills another guy and tries to eat his brains because he wants to get smarter. <laughs> um, it was very visceral. And um but we wrote a lot of stories, and about halfway through the course, the teacher gave kind of an assessment letter. Here's what you're strong at. Here's what you're. Here's what I want you to work on. And in the recommendation, in both sides, he was like, "You're an amazing writer," and stuff like that. And I know you can make uh, something of this. But in your back pocket, have a day job just until you make it. <laughs> no, he was. It was being. He's like, it's really hard to become famous doing this it's really difficult so find something else also that'll keep you fed while you're trying to pursue this and i was like okay and that's where me wanting to be a writer but then me also wanting to be a teacher kind of came from um but there are two ways of seeing a writing career because a lot of writers come up from journalism but they don't count journalism as their writing career they count when they start publishing fiction so i've been publishing since i was like 19 years old oh wow Um, I I met, befriended um, the music editor of the local college paper, and he had an opening, so I wrote a quick review, and he's like, this is great. And then after, I think, four of those, they're like, hey, um, we're splitting this section up, and I need content. What do you have? And I was like, how about a column where I just ramble for a thousand words a week? He was like, do it. <laughs> and that's where I and – I, and, and they paid me to do that. I did, 70, I did it for three years. Um on top of like doing reviews and some reporting kind of fell into journalism. Um, my publishing career began, uh, in 2008 with like a zombie story and like they pay you like five bucks and shit like that. Um, but it didn't really take off until about 10 years ago. And that's when it was like, Oh, okay, now I'm doing this. This is what I do. And stuck with short stories. And that led up to my first book. Um, back in 26, when did my first book come out? Shit. 2016. Yeah. 
when you're when you have a kid, your years blur. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so you know, I've been writing since I was 19 years old. I've been a fiction writer or a writer of some note, or I've been a fiction writer for about 10 years. But I've been someone that actually kind of like, hey, I know that name vaguely <laughs> for the past like five years or so. <laughs> Nice. Do you remember your first rejection letter? Oh shit, yeah. Um, actually, it's funny you say that. Okay, so I I used to submit back when you when it was uncommon to submit online. You would send out your manuscript. You send yourself a stamped envelope, and I was, you know, Stephen King's on writing came out in two thousand, so I was seventeen when that came out, and. Even then, it was still very much like you sent out your story, and they if they like it, they'll send you a contract and stuff like that. Um, I have a really good Joe Hill anecdote on this too, but um, so I was sent, and so I'd go to like Barnes and Nobles and Borders because Borders still existed then, trying to find what magazines were around. So there's Fancy and Science Fiction, there was Cemetery Dance whenever it came out, um, there was Weird Tales because Weird Tales was still going on for a while there, and then there was a magazine called Flesh and Blood. Um, Weird Tales, my first real, the first rejection I really remember was from them. And they sent me like a page and a half long rejection note. Like, here's what was wrong with the story of why would, and why it didn't work. It wasn't mean. It was like, I, I remember reading it going, the fuck? <laughs> and I was like, this is amazing. Cause up until that point, I've been sending, um, stories to like flesh and blood and and fantasy and science fiction and getting like little like notepad rejection notes and it was almost a checklist like this is not for us or whatever and here's this page and a half long rejection note of like i had said something stupid in the i forget what even story it was about but i referenced a book and it was and i had i had a stupid line in there like it wasn't as big as the oxford dictionary and I was actually thinking of Webster's, but they wrote in the letter, you have to realize the Oxford Dictionary is two volumes long. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I did not know that because I was a kid. Um, so I remember that. Um, fast forward a few years. Um, I'm on Facebook. And I'm, my writing career's kind of started taking off before my first book came out. And I befriended the editor of Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood lasted a few years. And... I was saying to him, like, I used to submit to your magazine all the time, never got in, but I would read it. And he was like, I have a bunch of them laying around. Do you want them? I was like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> so, like, a week, nice. I gave him my address and then thought nothing of it. And, like, three weeks later, this huge, like, thick manila envelope of most of the issues, he just gave them to me. And I have wow. them on the shelf, um, but I have them on in a magazine rack beneath, uh, on top of my ego shelf, where I put all my own shit. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, it's a pain in the ass, but I still I, I kind of miss physically submitting something because you had that um, you had that evidence, like hey, they 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 at least saw the fucking thing. Right, um, somebody and grabs I, it. And I say that as someone who has edited a magazine, I've edited a few books, and that that would be a pain in the fucking ass to do. So I know, and I I I appreciate technology at that point. But there's a part of me that's like. That was nice then. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You go to the back, back of the mag, look, see what the uh, submittal guidelines were yep. and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, and that, that's, and that, that's my rejection. Words. I, I was talking with Joe Hill a few years back. This is that interview I did. And we were talking and he has, he had a PO box and before he started, he'll say this in interviews before he was 
kind of resigned. It's like, why not write horror stories? I'm Joe Hill. I'm not Joe Joseph King. I'm not Stephen King's son. I'm Joe Hill. Um, he would try to send stuff to like Esquire and GQ and The Atlantic and shit like that. And so he'd go to his P.O. box and there'd be the, uh, you know, his self-addressed stamped envelopes in there with the rejection pieces and stuff like that. And there was one time he went and I think it was The Atlantic. Um, it wasn't his self-addressed stamped envelope. It was a new envelope from The Atlantic, I think it was, you know, with their masthead on the return address. And he got really excited. And this is back before cell phones. So he went to a payphone and calls his wife. He's like, oh my God, I got this thing from the Atlantic. And and they were getting he and her hyping each other up and they're psyching each other up and they're like, open it, open it. Should I wait till I get home? No, open it now, open it now. And he opens it up on the phone with his wife and pulls out a standard rejection note. And on the bottom, someone had written, We're sorry we lost your self-addressed stamped envelope. And your <laughs> And I was like, that is, and I, and I said this, I'm like, that is the best rejection story ever. (laughs) Like I, I, you know, I'm happy with my weird tales rejection. I'm happy with making friends with the former editor of flesh and blood. Um, but that blows every rejection story I've ever heard out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he, he's like, I, I can laugh about it now, but I couldn't, I was crushed. I was like, Oh yeah, I didn't walk into traffic, but yeah. Man, that's brutal. Oh. Um, <laughs> do you uh, do you have a, a process? Do you have like a certain, you know, make a cup of tea, find a quiet spot in the house? You write at a certain time of the day. Do you have any sort of rituals or anything that you go through? Ah, uh, you know, there's that whole st- that whole chestnut that writers are superstitious, and I am. I am fairly superstitious, um, but it's become trendy now to like write in fucking Starbucks and shit. Um, yeah. I used to be a lot more ritualistic and to be fair i didn't write anything good when i was like that um i used to have an office and it was like decorated with my shit that i liked and and all that kind of stuff and i used to chain smoke while i'd be writing but mostly i'd be playing on fucking facebook so it wasn't (laughs) raining um it was when i got rid of the office and i started writing in the kitchen i i literally write at my kitchen table um that I started doing something, um, you know, I, it, and even then I used to have like minor rituals of like, I'll go have a cigarette and then I'll read a certain amount of what I did yesterday and do a little editing. Then I'll go have another cigarette. Then I'll start writing and then I'll listen to this album and blah, 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 blah. Um, anymore. It's more like, Hey, do I have two hours and it's fairly quiet? All right, let's go. Um, or even an hour and a half to enough to get to like 1500, 2000 words a day. Right. And, um, anymore it's like do i have a cup of coffee do i have a toothpick just so i can chew on something while i'm reading whatever i wrote the day before um and then i just go from there sometimes i'll listen to music sometimes i won't um it really and i typically write at night because that's when my kid goes to bed my wife works has to get up early so you know by 10 o'clock my house is fucking dead so i'm like all right and i'm a I, i try i'm a unfortunately a bit of a night owl which is not really good when you're a teacher um so I have like an hour and a half to like just sit down and write. But like during the summer, I'll write during the day and then feel vaguely aimless the rest of the day. It's like, wait, <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? Right. I spent 10 months writing at night and then all of a sudden I can write during the day. And it's like, what the hell am I supposed to do with my time? Yeah, um, write, write more. <laughs> no, if you had, it's funny. I know some writers who can just keep going and going and going. But I've also talked to a lot of writers and, and there's a tap out point where 
there's just a point where you're not putting anything good down on paper. Like, and you, it might look good to you at the time, but you know, the next day when you're reading over that shit, it's coming out. It's right. gone. Right. Um, so I, my, I tend to be, there have been times where I can really, when I used to smoke, I used to be able to write a lot more. I think it's because it raises your blood rate, um, in your head and maybe, um, I mean, there have been times where I've been able to write a whole story in a day, but usually I'm a, I'm a 1500, 2000 word. Maybe if I'm feeling really inspired, 3000 words a day, and then I'm kind of done. Then you hear people like Brian Keene or Jonathan Mayberry and they're like, yeah, I wrote 6,000 words. I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> right. First, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, first time I met John Mayberry, I, I was kind of roped in to help organize this regional convention in Pittsburgh. I was still living in Pittsburgh at the time. And they hired, they wanted me to kind of get some horror writers because they had built themselves. They'd always build themselves as a science fiction, fantasy, and horror convention. They didn't know any fucking horror people. They knew me. That was it. Because uh, all their friends were sci-fi fantasy geeks. And I don't say geeks in a, derog- in, in a derogatory manner. It's just what they were. I'm a horror geek. So they ha- they're like, hey, can you ask a few people? And I was like, sure. John Mayberry was living in PA at the time. And I invited him out to come to this uh, convention called Confluence. And one, he's huge. And two, he wears really loud Hawaiian shirts. But three, he's in the Martial Arts Hall of Fame. So he moves like fucking a slight breeze. Like he startles the (laughs) shit out of me every time he's around. Um, But in the middle of the convention, whenever he didn't have a reading or a panel or a signing to do, he was at the Starbucks trying to finish uh, at the time he was writing Joe Ledger books. Um, and he'd just be banging them out. I'm like, how many did you do? I said, I did 8,000 words. I was like, what the fuck? Wow. Uh, yeah, I, 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 maybe I'd be able to do that if this was my full time. I did it for a living kind of thing. Maybe, but I get too distracted by literally life itself. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like I'm 1500 words in, but the dog needs to go for a walk, you know, right. (laughs) I'm a, a thousand words in, but I haven't eaten in 18 hours, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, they say that, you know, um, rituals and things aside, like the only way to write is to just sit at the table and write. Like you said, if you've got an hour and a half, fuck, I'm going to I'm going to take an hour and a half and I'm going to write as much as I can. Or I'm going to, you know, work on this scene that I'm trying to develop or whatever, as yeah. opposed to like, well, that's not really in the well, you know, I have tomorrow. If I wait till tomorrow, I can plan to get on a little bit earlier and then I'll have some more time and then then I can get some good writing in. If you're writing, you're a writer. Um, I know people who look at my 2,000 words and they're like, that's a lot because they'll work on a paragraph for a week. Yes, not that they're um, fucking around. It's just like they don't have a lot of time or the words don't come as quickly for them. So they really want to f- work on phrasing and stuff like that. And, they, and they'll try various things throughout the week. And then they'll write a paragraph, they'll delete it. Then they'll break into two paragraphs and they'll delete one of them. And, <laughs> and it's like, and and they turn out fair good works um i'm not gonna drop names because i'm not sure if they're like comfortable talking process and i'm like hey as long as you're writing who gives a fuck um because it is you know the world we were talking about before pop culture certain things like people want to kind of like that's a kid thing that's a kiddie thing and there is something vaguely self-conscious about creating art because you're not creating you're not creating power lines. You're not digging ditches. You're not building houses. You're creating fantasy worlds. And 
even in the most confident people, I, I bet if you asked Stephen King in an honest moment, he would be like, there'd be probably still times that he kind of goes, this is, I, I make believe for a living. I play pretend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to kind of gird yourself against that and be like, no, I'm making art. And if I, again, I kind of go back to an earlier point I said, if you're, you know, if you're just entertaining someone, that's still valid. Um, but people, when you talk about art, you, it's easy to get defensive. Yeah, yeah. I, I I tend to fall into the, I don't know if I have enough time. I mean, I write mostly for my blog. I've written a couple of short things. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, nothing that's come out yet. But I, I kind of like, well, I've got an hour. Eh, it's not worth it. Like, I still fall into that trap. And I know that it's just a matter of sitting down and, and clacking away at the keyboard. But, like, I haven't, I haven't gotten over that hump yet. <laughs> Uh, and it, it works differently for for other people. Every person. I remember when my daughter was an infant, and my I um I used to teach in Pennsylvania. I teach in Virginia now, and uh, they cut budgets, so they cut staffing. So I was laid off. My wife was still working, and so I'd go pick her up at like nine o'clock at night, and I'd put my daughter would be like sleeping in the would start or she'd come home around nine o'clock at night. I put my daughter to bed like 8, 8.30, 8.15. So I'd have literally f- a half hour, 45 minutes to get something on the page. And <laughs> I remember the agony of waiting for my computer. I used to have a desktop at that point to load up so I could be like, let me write something. God damn it. <laughs> and I'd get like a paragraph in, but it would feel good to get that paragraph down. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that necessity, I kind of lost that. I don't really have, I only have an hour. The only time I do that now is if it's like 11 o'clock and I'm like, I have a half hour, but I'm also falling asleep as I stand here in the kitchen doorway. So yeah, I'm not doing it tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> I mean, I once came home, I, I, they called me in for jury duty a few years back and they didn't select me because I teach in a small town and so when you're a teacher in a small town, you if you don't know directly everyone, you know they know you know someone that that person also knows. Mm-hmm. So if someone's accused of a crime, chances are you know someone related to them because you teach that kid, you know their kid. And right. so I was of course booted out of the jury pool, which was fine with me because um, I really didn't want to take off work. Um, I'll go and I'll do my duty, but if you're gonna be like, no, you're not what I want, I'm like, excellent. Um, <laughs> So I had to report at like eight o'clock. I was out by 1130. My daughter was in school. My wife was at work. I had had the day to myself. I'm like, all right. And I literally came home and I had until when did she get out of school at that point? It was like 330. So I had until 330 and I just wrote and I wrote a story. It came out a few years back. It was um, it was in Dark Moon Digest. It was about um, an alien invasion kind of thing in sex aliens it was weird it was a weird little story um <laughs> but it was fun but i wrote it i wrote like three thousand words in like a day and i was i was really pleased with myself but i was but i'm also the guy again who would be like i have a half hour before my wife gets home and i want to hang out with her so i'm gonna put a paragraph down on this thing you know yeah well that's cool now when you when you do write do you uh outline stuff out uh, or do you just kind of pants it go through it and sort of let things develop as you're going along do you have how do you approach that 
A lot of my stories, mo- actually, ninety nine point nine percent of my stories are what ifs. Like, what if that happened? Or I'll get, I'll picture a scene in my head, and I won't know the context, and I'll try to figure out the context, um, and I'll just work through it. That right, that leads to me to writing myself into corners a lot, but it also keeps it fresh. The only time I've ever outlined anything was when I co-wrote um, the novella How We Broke with Bracken McLeod, and he and I had never collaborated with each other before or really with anyone. He had collaborated on a short story with John Bowden once, but it was like a flash piece, I think. I think it was like 1,500 words. We were writing a novella. Um, so we had to plot it out. And the way we – and we did it – I don't know if it's a traditional outline – is we – the story, a big element of the story is a Polaroid camera and these old photographs, these old Polaroids. So what we did was we outlined it as like, okay, well, what are – we'll say there are 12 – I think – how many Polaroids? There was a handful of Polaroids or a certain number. And we're like, okay, so what is this one? What could the scene be about that? And then we would take turns. That's the only time I've ever outlined. Um, a lot of times, a lot of it is I'll get an idea or I'll get a scene in my head. And I'll be like, all right, where are these people coming from and where are they going? Um, I Sometimes, I, I haven't done it in eight years. Um, I used to run a writing workshop at a convention, the Confluence I mentioned. And... Mm-hmm. One, and one of the things when I teach is I like a lot of hands-on material. And English is one of those things that you wouldn't think are hands-on, but fuck it. You can write. That's hands-on. Um, so after spending time doing exercises on, like, opening lines and natural dialogue and escalation of conflict and blah, 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 um, to kind of sum up something, sum up what I was teaching, I'd be like, I'll give them a prompt. I'll be like, there's a room where there are two people, and at the end of the scene, only one will leave. Um, what does that all that mean? Figure it out. Go. And they would sit there and write. And I did it that time as well. And I came up with this opening line of Bobby found it easier to hold a gun to a little girl's head than he would have thought or something along those lines. And I was like, what the fuck's that? (laughs) And let's figure it out. And I, it was a story called, it ended up being a story called Baby Grows a Conscience. Um, it was in my, and I, it, it was published. It was the quick, at the time, it was the quickest I'd written a story and sold a story because the, the convention was in July at the end of July. I wrote the story on the beginning of August, sent it at the end of August. It got accepted by a magazine by the end of September. No middle of September. Cause it was around my birthday. Um, and it was the, and that was in 2010. And that was the quickest that it ever happened to me. And I thought that was amazing. But I love stories like that where I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck's going on. So it can blow up in my face. I have a folder on my computer or on my, one of my flash drives that's just full of ideas that start off really good. And I just kind of run out of gas because either I've written myself into a corner and I don't know where to go with it. Or there just wasn't enough there to really go somewhere with it. It was just kind of a cool notion that I was just kind of practicing. It's like playing scales on a musical instrument, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's and that's just how I do it. That's cool. Half joking. Do you enjoy like just the process of sitting and writing? Um, I know there's that chestnut. It's like I hate writing, but I love having have written. And I'm like, right. no, I, I enjoy I enjoy writing. Like, OK, so the pandemic came down and if nothing else. So I start teaching virtually because you have to. Um. And so I have suddenly a lot more time on my hands because, you know, the, with the way our, my county is where we teach, like we couldn't teach 
one to one. We couldn't like, okay, you have class at eight o'clock. Well, now it's class on a computer at eight o'clock because not everyone had access. So you'd end up putting up a lot of stuff online, record a little short video. So, but most of your days actually, you know, I had to myself or hanging out with the kid. So I had a lot of time writing. And if nothing, and I was like, oh, I can write so much now. And I wrote a lot. But there also is a point where there are a lot of there is a, a lot of that. I'm, pl- I'm basically practicing the skill of writing. There are a lot of stories I kind of want. Nah, I don't think so. I think I wrote in the between March and June like ten stories, but mm. like four of them are good. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like, I as soon as I finished them, I printed them out and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to edit this, and I just put it in a folder. And be like, it's a nice idea. Maybe I'll cannibalize it. Um, but even when the story isn't going well, I enjoy it. I enjoy thinking about how the story – like it sounds like I find my own stories dull, but I use it to fall asleep. I'll be thinking like, okay, uh, I want to write the story. I have to write the scene. So let me – and it, it, it calms my head. It helps me calm my thinking because it gives me something to focus on as I kind of relax. Um, I don't know if you can hear that. Those are my dogs. Um, <laughs> So no, I actually I do enjoy the process of writing. Right, cool. It, it, what what's the longest you've ever been stalled on a story? You know, in the process of writing. Um, I usually am stalled until I get a better idea or it works itself out. Um, so if I'm working on something and it kind of stalls out on me, I'll still be putting words on a page. It might not be good work, but I'll put words on a page, and then it'll either work work itself out because I'll think of whatever tripped me up. Or I'll get a better idea and be like, all right, am I writing this for any reason other than I kind of had a cool idea? No? Then fuck it and move on. Um, and that's kind of what I do. So there is no real like, oh, I was stuck on a story for three months. No, by that point, I've written like three other stories. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So Sometimes I, I feel like that could be like a, you know, it's like something stuck in your tooth. You keep worrying at it, worrying at it because like, you know, you have that that grain there that you want to build around, and like, you know, you, you write a certain way, and you're like, ah, I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, and then you know, but you know, kind of like percolates for a while. Yeah, I, I I will let things percolate for a long time. Um, the new book it percolated in my head for about three or four years before I sat down and wrote it last year. Hmm. Just because I was I was working on other things, and plus I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Right, right. And, how is I mean, you know, you said you're you're a teacher. How hard is it to find a balance between everything that goes on day to day and then, you know, carving out that time? I know you said you tend to write, you know, at the end of the evening when everybody goes to bed. So maybe that just makes it easy that way. It does. I mean, at this point, I've been a teacher for 14 years. So, I, you know, I kind of even when um, I teach like I've been teaching ninth grade now for four or five years straight um and just ninth grade um so you kind of get run into it's like okay i know the material backwards and forwards so i can come up with creative ways and it's not going to take up uh extraordinary amount of time in order to do it um but no it's more like i get home i i kind of work my working schedule is kind of like i try to make everything in such a way that very rarely do i have to bring stuff home um just because I have a very project-based class the way I teach. So there aren't a lot of worksheets or tests or grades, more project-based. So periodically I have to bring stuff home because they're projects. But when I'm home, I'm being a dad or I'm being a husband. So like my day kind of breaks up like, okay, from 
six thirty until seven thirty, I'm dad because I'm getting my kid ready for school. From eight o'clock till three o'clock, I'm Mr. Anderson. Um, from three o five until eight forty five or eight o'clock, I'm dad and or Paul because I'm a husband. Um, and then once everyone goes to bed, it's like okay, now I'm Paul Michael Anderson. So it's like switching identities <laughs> almost. Um, Dude, the only reason why I use my middle name is because my name is so fucking common. <laughs> I, I when I first started writing, I wasn't using my middle name. I was just Paul Anderson, and like, and, and there's a clear line of demarcation in my on my ego shelf, my ego bookcase actually at this point, um, between where I was Paul Anderson versus Paul Michael Anderson. One, the story's almost changed; they're much more weird, um, because. They would add it, the book onto Amazon or Goodreads or whatever, and it was so hard to get them. Like, this is my story. Yes, but which Paul Anderson are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you the Paul sixteen spaces Anderson? Because that's how they would have to code it. Or are you Paul fifteen spaces Anderson? Because that's how you'd have to code it. So you know, at that point, I was friends with the writer Damian Angelica Walters, and I was like, what the fuck do I do? Do I do PM Anderson, which I don't like, or do I do Paul Michael Anderson? She's like, do Paul Michael Anderson? I'm like. Well, you know, three names that works with Damien Angelica Walters. Uh, yeah. Like, well, I have a bias, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it works out. So now when I'm a teacher, I'm signing stuff as a teacher. And I'm just Paul Anderson. I'm like, I should put my middle name. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it looks weird without it. Right. So have you ever had um, a parent come up and go, oh, my God, I read your last book. You know, it blew me away. I try okay um yes and no I generally try to separate both lifestyles like my writing does inform how I teach because I actually use it I you know I I, people wonder like how am I gonna use this in real life I'm like motherfucker I do use this in real life so shut up um but I tend to be like I don't I don't tend to be like well when I wrote this book students and this is how I don't do that um but kids they're very te- they're tech natives so they're like hey i think i found you on amazon I'm like don't read that book uh, <laughs> it's very violent there are dead children in it um there was i was picking my daughter up from school and i was in the car rider lane so i'm in a line with a bunch of other parents in our cars and i'm reading a book and they had the kids line up and you, you know, and the teach and the the aide helps the kid get in the car and stuff like that. And she leans down. She's like, "Is your middle name Michael?" And I was like, "Why?" <laughs> because my daughter had you, and she said you were a writer, so we looked you up. If I brought, and she and she wanted your book, so I got it for. Her. If I brought the book, would you sign it? I'm like, "Yeah, I I think." <laughs> but don't let her read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll sign it, but just li- like hold on to it. Literally, the t- it was bones are made to be broken, and the title novella is about a mom in the early '90s raising a kid, and she suffers a nervous breakdown. So it's about mental illness. Um, the last story of the st- of the collection is called. Um, it was a reprint from an anthology. And it's called "All You That You Leave Behind," and it was about um, this couple that miscarries, but. They become aware of a reality, a version of reality where they had the baby. They went through the pregnancy. And as the story progresses, the two realities kind of start merging. And how what that would do to someone who just lost a child. So there's a lot of traumatic stuff in there. I'm like, please don't. She never did. <laughs> like it was never mentioned again. 
But then I had a student, she had graduated, she was in, she's in law school now, actually. She came back to visit her parents or like that, and she wanted to stop by the school, and she was like, hey, can I visit you, Anderson? I'm like, yeah, sure. So she comes in, it was like the day before holiday break, and she pulls out my first book, and she's like, would you sign it? And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. So I literally went to the na- the title page, and I and you know, writers always when they autograph sometimes put a little message, and I just put really big on there. Don't read this, and then signed it, um, <laughs> and then gave it back. Um, so I, but I, in general, I try to keep them separate because it always feels vaguely like I'm bragging, like, "Hi, I am your English teacher who writes for a living." Uh, I feel like I should have you know leather patches on my blazers and a really hemorrhoidal asshole, you know. <laughs> Well, like you said, kids are so, you know, so tech savvy that it just seems like, you know, it's the kind of thing that would, you know, tend to come up, I guess. It, it, it does. At, at, at a certain point every year, it does tend to come up and I'll make a joke about it. But I, I, I rest assured in the fact it's the only time I'm ever I'm ever grateful for the, you know, pandemic illiteracy in this country is most kids aren't going to be bothered. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> I'm like, yes, don't be a reader. Reading is for losers. Um, now, do your grammar homework. Um, but no, I do try to keep them separated. But it always does come up at some point. And I always kind of play it down. All right. And what kind of stuff do you read yourself? Do, do you read mostly horror or are you kind I read, of mix around? I mean, I, I'm looking at my book, one of my bookcases right now. I kind of have a mix of everything. Like, obviously, horror is going to have huge... Um, portion of my book space but like if you ask me my top five favorite books you know i'd have something like uh, another day of paradise by eddie little which was a crime novel written while he was in prison um yeah i'd have a novel i'd have a book like um the partly cloudy patriot which is a series of essays by sarah Val. i'd have uh theodore rex the middle biography of his of Theodore Roosevelt's um, presidency by Edmund Morris. I read everything. I tend to be drawn to dark stuff. Um, right now, I'm reading The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones because the dude's fucking amazing. Um, I tend to like a lot of everything. Like I, I don't, I you know, I might not be geared towards one thing or another. Like for example, I I'm not a big sci-fi fan, but I love uh, Nettie Okorafor's Binti trilogy. That that mm. blew me the fuck away. Um, I love I, I love Neuromancer by William Gibson. I don't read ne- William Gibson anymore because I just I'm not interested in anything else he read. But Neuromancer was amazing when I read it. Um, I'm looking around. I'm looking at my shelf right now. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm a big fan of Richard the Richard Stark novels. Um, Richard Stark was um, Don Westerlake's. Um, pen name he wrote where he would write these really hard-boiled novels about parker a burglar and they're amazing i I structured my latest book over how parker novels were because there is um parker novels are always broken up into four parts and see the second or third one because it's been a few years since i wrote a parker novel where it would be out of his pov and would be into like his antagonist pov or supporting characters pov and that section of the book would be from that character's point of view and then you'd come back to parker so when i wrote standalone like the second section of the book is told from the perspective of his coat the my main character's co-workers and then i jump back to my main character um I'm like what else do i have on my shelves right now i have some jill uh lansdale i even have the only book that hugh laurie the actor who played house he wrote, 
he wrote a novel once called The Gun Seller, and it was kind of a spoof spy novel. Things fucking hilarious. Um, <laughs> but no, I have like I have all three of George Carlin's books. You know, I I I, I read everything. Yeah, horror tends to take precedent, but I love. Uh, you have to read everything, man, just so you can see what's out there, see what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, I, I tend to jump back and forth between. Fiction and nonfiction, and then fiction would be like sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of like history, military yeah. history, stuff like that. Um, God, you are a dad. <laughs> yeah, well, because you know, like I, I love um, Charles Delin. Okay, absolute favorite author. Um, but like, I can only read so much fiction. At once, because then I don't want to say it blends together, right? Because everything's got its own unique story and characters and whatever. Yeah. But, like, I need to, like, mix that up and, like, you know, read a history of, like, Genghis Khan or some shit, you know? Like, just kind of blow that out of the water and reset, you know? Oh, and that makes perfect sense. And 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 that's a natural thing. I, I don't understand people who can only read one thing, one type of thing. It's like... Man, like I love coffee ice cream, but if that's all I ever could eat for the rest of my life, I'd get really bored of coffee ice cream. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you were talking about um, Damien Angelica Walters. Um, have you been out to Necronomicon? I have not. I've never been out to Necronomicon. I know one of the organizers, and he and they've been threatening to invite me. I'm not much of a weird writer, so I don't know if I'd fit in there. Um, but it always sounds really interesting. It, it's a great con. I mean, they it's about two thousand people, and it's and it's all over. You know, I mean, obviously it's mainly weird fiction, cosmic horror, but there's but there's straight horror writers yeah. there as oh, well, yeah. and it it's oh, it's such a good it's such a good time. I mean, I, I it always seemed like a good time. It, this pan before the pandemic hit, this was going to be my big con year. I was yeah. hitting scares at care because I'm a big supporter of that charity con. Uh, I was going to hit Nikon because I've been threatening to do that forever. And people were like, you need to come. Um, and I was going to hit Confluence plus whatever else came up. Confluence was a regional con in Pennsylvania because that's when originally the book was going to come out. But then, you know, the pandemic hit. Everything got canceled. So we had to kind of scramble. Um, so but Necronomicon has always been one of those like, oh, that only happens every other year. That sounds really interesting. And I know a bunch of people who go, you know, mm-hmm. so it's definitely a goal at some point. Well, 2021's the year, assuming, you know, we're able to do it. <laughs> yeah, assuming we get the hell out of this. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, fingers crossed, because, like, that that's my big, you know, every other year, like, that's my big trip, you know? Yeah. Like, go and spend, you know, five or six days and tour around province, and, yeah, it's, it's yeah, we we take over <laughs> the, the, the weird that's community. What that's what I hear. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And, and you know, there the people from all over. People come from Canada. People come from the UK. Um, you know, a lot of the game writers and stuff like that are, are over there, like Mike Mason and, and those guys. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's so much fun. It, uh, like I said, I, you know, and that's the one thing with social media. You, you kind of get a vicarious voyeuristic experience through it, and it seems like it's a blast. Yeah. Well, speaking of social media, how do you handle the – the conundrum of social media with its, you know, positives and clearly negative aspects. You know, it, it is a conundrum because, but it, it, it the, the conundrum's effect is as much as you invest in it. I, you know, 
I was talking with someone about this recently, like in the past like 48 hours. I was like, I always kind of view Twitter as very high speed, high interest, but it can it, the dumpster fire, it blazes hot and bright. Yeah. Um, whereas Facebook is more of a slower dumpster fire. It's one you can warm your hands by um, <laughs> and kind of take in the sense. Um, but it all it's all in how you cultivate your social media. Like my Twitter is kind of open. Like I don't have it locked down, so you, you can't see it unless you follow me or I allow you to follow me. But I kind of I'm very wary of who I follow. I I'm very wary of what I look at just because I don't I can't invest all my time in that man. I know like mm. there are tons of things that go on, and and some of it is thing. Creaky stairs that are finally getting repaired, uh, for lack of a better term, or at least getting awareness on. And those are good, but they almost never directly involve me. And a lot of people tend to flock on them like vultures. And it's like, why are you? Why are you? You're not signal boosting. You're not adding anything to it. You just want someone to pay attention to you. And that's not helping anyone. And so I always try to avoid it. Social media, if nothing else, has really taught me it's like, I don't have to share my opinion on fucking everything. Right, because right. it's not always needed or warranted. Um, I might have an opinion, but I can talk about it with my wife or my friends. I don't need to jump in on every. I don't need to jump into every dumpster fire, you know. Um, and I think, and you've, been, and I've been seeing a lot of people kind of come to the same conclusion recently. Um, and I guess that's a good thing because we've all been stuck on social media, so people are kind of like really starting to get the idea of maybe cultivating their own spaces a little more judiciously um, because the world's going to boogie along no matter how many retweets you get. You know, yeah. you can be a reply guy to, to Donald Trump's Twitter feed. No one gives a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what are you changing? Ooh, you had a sick burn. And I'm, and I'm, I'm as guilty. I'm not throwing stones. I'm as guilty of that as anyone. If I think of a sick burn, I'm going to de- fucking reply. Uh, right. Yeah, I've done it. Because it's funny, <laughs> damn it. Um, but I, I don't, ever think oh i'm gonna get so many who gives a fuck at the end of the day you're gonna log off and have to go take a dump anyway you know and that's and that's about it's gonna change the world as much as your fucking hashtag you know um it's insidious though right like you said you're you're on it's always there people are always saying stuff and you're like you say you're like oh fuck i you know i should say blah 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 but yeah at the end of the day it's not worth the aggravation i have a friend i see him I'll, I'll get notifications that he's, you know, replied to some thing somewhere or whatever. And I'm like, dude, you're beating your head against the wall. Like, there's yeah. no point. You're not changing anybody's opinion. I mean, I think social media also has its uses after the uh, with um, the death of like George Floyd. And there is a lot of protesting. So you could. So there are a lot of links to like uh, the Minnesota bail fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that like i gave uh, you know if you can't make it out to a protest in minnesota because you're stuck in virginia or arizona you can give my help get the people out of jail when they're arrested for protesting um right. so there's some good to it but you're not cons- you're not gonna convince the twitter handle maga maga mama to suddenly turn against you know her cult leader it's not going to happen, and all you're going to do is frustrate yourself and wonder and think of all the sick burns you should have said to her when <laughs> you can't sleep that night. Um, right. And sometimes and, – and that can kind of – well, I want to be an ally. I want to be an ally. It's like you just retweeting something doesn't make you an ally. What are you doing? 
you right. know. So it's all in how you cultivate it. And that's and that's something I've been like kind of watching myself do. Like on Facebook, uh, uh, Facebook I kind of keep like I have, you know, it's locked down. Unless you're friends with me, you can't see anything. And I generally I try to comb through my friends list pretty judiciously. Um, but I kind of keep that more of like, hey, I don't even share pictures of my kid. Um, right. Because I say that for my wife, and my wife has like seven friends deliberately. Um, I have more. <laughs> I have, but I have more of a, a profile. You, you know, I have. I'm an author. You know, so I have seventeen hundred um, right. or seven. Um, but it's it's a more of a like, okay, I could say something here, or I could actually go do something about it, um, or I could, you know. Give my support by sh- sharing this, sharing the link to the Minnesota Bail Fund, and hopefully someone else will join in. Um, and that's how I kind of view it. It's like, yeah, it's a conundrum, but it's only a conundrum as much as you make it to be one. Yeah, well, like you right. say, as you, I was right. gonna say, as you, you know, you know, curate your your feeds and your friends list and stuff like that. Block early, block often, um, and yeah. and there there is a space within there with really cool people that you can connect with and, you know, do stuff like this or play games together or, you know, meet out for a beer. You find out that they're, you know, in your local area. So there, there are some, definitely some good aspects to it, but man, you gotta, you gotta get through a lot of chaff to get there sometimes. uh, Yeah. And there, and there's that. And there's also within oneself, you have to realize that not everything you think or say is this nugget that the world needs. And that's, that's a, that's a hell of a thing for a writer to say, but (laughs) You know, I'm the spotlight doesn't always have to be on me. The spotlight doesn't have to be on any particular one person unless it's like someone important having to. It's going on in the world. Um, and that's the thing that I think, like I said, the conundrum is only as much of a problem as you make it. Um, and a lot of people let, like they don't know how to mentally log off. Even if they're off the social media, they're still thinking about it. And it's like, why? Yeah. What, what, what is that doing for you? Now, for people who are really introvert and that's how they connect and that that's a whole different thing and i can't begin to speak on that um i wouldn't presume to speak on that um but if you have an outside life an outer life of some kind an outer by i by which i define as anything beyond facebook and so and twitter and stuff like that even someone you text with i consider an outer life um then focus on that tend that garden you know mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in a you know it sounds stupid, but in a real space, you know, like say even texting, that's mm-hmm. that's someone in a physical space where like you oh, know yeah. online, it's just like it's it's almost like it's not a real thing. I mean, it's how you get trolls up there talking about oh we're gonna you know kill your kids and punch in your face and like all this stuff because it it's not real, you know. So I know, speak. but and and that is a danger because there are people who that blind blurs. Um, there there True. is that. I mean, for most people who are you know not twisted um the line's pretty strong like i have my outer life of my friends my family even friends i've made through facebook like i met bracken mcleod through facebook i met max booth for and damian jelka walters through facebook i consider them friends most of them uh, with the exception of max i've actually met in meet space and hung out with mm-hmm. um but there are people who that line blurs and it's both damaging for them mentally because they can't separate or it's damaging because there are people to others because they are dangerous and they are going to try to find your fucking address. And that's 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 the fear of it. That, and that's like I said, the conundrum, 
some people make it bigger than they want they are because maybe their outer life lacks. I don't know. It's yeah. it's it's it, it is a I, I like that I like that term conundrum because it is one. Yeah. Um, and I'm probably speaking from a place of privilege where it's like, yeah, it doesn't really affect me, but I'm a straight white male, man. You know, I have I, I am the bumper bowling character of life. Um, <laughs> so I can't speak to someone of a marginalized community. I don't know what I don't, I don't know what social media is like if you're marginalized. And I can't presume to speak like that. Um, it may be it probably is vastly different even online. You know, and this and that might be one of their few safe spaces where they can kind of cultivate some form of an outer life where they can meet up, like you said, and meet cool people and like do gaming or whatever their interests are yeah. um, happen to be. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And again, not not being able to speak to it, but that, you know, the sort of problems that, you know, those communities face, you know, in their daily lives at work and, you know, driving around and you know, just doing whatever is, is the same online and, and, and maybe even worse online, you know, exactly. until you can cultivate that and sort of, you know, like I said, block early, block off them. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, nah, social media. I mean, I tend to enjoy it cause I go in there and I'll share, like I'll find, I'll see a, a funny meme or I'll hear about a cool book and that's how I use it. But I have that luxury. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're lucky in that regard. Yeah. All right. Well, so let me let me throw this at you, then we'll we'll get into some book stuff. Uh, how do you think that the world of traditional publishing has been affected by the the self publishing or the indie press? That that's such a big part of of the space that we move in. You know, I, I think like anything, it, big publishing, like most of the entertainment venue, it just chases wherever the flashing the shiny coin is, you know, um, the guy who wrote the Martian, the guy who, um, Hugh Lowry, that not, that's not the guy who wrote the Martian, but there's that other guy, Hugh Lowry. They came out from self publishing. The guy who wrote, um, Ray player one. I think he self published that, mm-hmm. um, 50 shades of gray was originally self published or vaguely self published, you know, and Hollywood and the entertainment industry jumps onto it. Um, all it did was it made the noise a little noisier. It didn't, I don't think it changed. I think it showed a lot of people that, I think if for people who need that confidence boost of, hey, you can do this, either through a micro press or a small press or self-publishing, hey, you know, you might have a shot, you could do this, go try it. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who honestly shouldn't. <laughs> don't have, like, I, 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 you know, there are people like, you don't need talent to write. I'm like, yeah, you do. Anyone can write. Anyone can write. Talent means that what you write is interesting. Anyone can write a straight, a clear sentence. It is possible. Anyone can write clearly and effectively. Interestingly though, that's different. And that's where the talent comes in. Talent is table salt cheap, um, cheaper than table salt, but it is prevalent. So a lot of self published thing is competently written, but it's not interesting. But Mm -hmm. again, that's the interest itself is inherently subjective. So self publishing, I don't think changed much. I, you know, I think other than a uh, possible intrinsic confidence boost to people who might need it. Um, but in terms of how the business conducted itself, I'm not in big five. So I, w- I can't I'm, I'm just watching the trends come along for the past few years. It's like it didn't really change much. You know, mm-hmm. big five still pumps out the self-help books and the ghost written celebrity memoirs and 
you know, the big one seasonal novel from this author who hasn't given a fuck about a paycheck in 20 years um, because they have they, they live on a boat. Um, and then you have everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I feel like I, I guess it's like a small ripple, right? Like, so they don't probably really notice. But, you know, again, like you said, they're they're churning out stuff that's, you know, geared for the culture. So in, in some some regards, it's vapid. It's it's popcorn. It's, you know, it's something that's not going to have, you're not going to remember, you know, the next Brad Thor novel or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Who cares? Like, you go kill the bad guys, it's over. You know, you find it at your Goodwill store. Somebody read it and, you know, got rid of it right away. Where, yeah. like, in, in this, not maybe not so much self-publishing, but in the indie press market, so like Hippocampus and, you know, all these places, you're getting more quality writing, you know, from from people who wouldn't necessarily have the chance to, you know, publish with Dalton or whatever. You know, they're they're able to work in a space and churn out really good work. Um, that that's nominated, you know, for all these awards that we see, you know, within the community. Yeah, I th- I think if nothing else, it self publishing kind of showed how cheap it is to publish. So a lot of publishers, some who just who should be there, and some who really were just wanting to spend what Nick Mamatas calls like, hey, you got insurance money from an, an accident claim, you want to use it on publishing? Great, good vanity project. <laughs> um, but it did provide a bigger space. Like, like I said, it makes the noise noisier. So you have to still be just as as a reader, as a consumer, you still have to be just as um, exacting of what you want. And sometimes you, you know, there are a lot of Patricia Kellerman novels uh, out there or Jonathan Kellerman. I'm sorry. Um, Patricia Cornwell is what I'm thinking of. Um, mm-hmm. But you might find someone good like Shane Stevens or um, uh, Ling Ma, who wrote a great really quiet post-apocalyptic novel called severance um there's a really weird post-apocalyptic novel but it was great um and it was published by a big five um but in terms of like how it conduct the business conducted itself i you know everyone's like oh it's self-publishing is gonna change the world no it didn't no it didn't <laughs> i mean i and i, I remember watching that and i know chuck wendig kind of jumped in as like hey why can't we all just get along it's all good it's all gravy and it's like it's all the same as it ever has been yeah yeah i'm glad i I mean and for people who can make a living at self-publishing good for them good for them if they can find because like i I was saying earlier it's like anyone can write effectively interestingly is a different story but interest itself is inherently subjective what i find completely dog shit boring someone else could be like this is what i've been looking for the entire time i've been reading books i just didn't know it and things i find are like almost life-affirming people would be like the fuck you like that for (laughs) so but that's the way it's always been you know you there was no golden age of publishing i mean i remember i was reading a biography of of theodore roosevelt because he was an actual writer before he was president i mean it was like travel not travel and war shit but it was he was a working writer and it was and they there was a section in one of the biographies i think it's in the rise of theodore roosevelt by edmund morris and they're talking about how he just had these agreements with the actual publisher who ran the publishing house, which is not that much different than me talking to Max Booth III of Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing. And it's right. like, you're not going to – it hasn't changed. And that was a hundred-some years ago. It's not it, – it, 
publishing itself by itself is someone creates a product. Someone else says, I will distribute that product and take a cut, and then it goes out. And that's the end of the story. Whether you're self-publishing or you're by Big Five or you're small press, that is the beginning and end of the story. Creator, middleman, consumer. Whether the middleman is Amazon distributing it and helping you upload the file or it is, um, you know, McGraw-Hill putting out the book for you, someone else is doing it. Unless you're selling, you know, hand-stapled manuscripts from the trunk of your car, there's always – the business model does not change. We call it a different change, but it's still the same thing. It's just the access point is different. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the biggest thing. And and I, I would imagine more responsive too, right? Like you, know, you get Max, you know, you could text Max or shoot him an email and you're going to get a response right away. Where if you're dealing with, you know, one of these big companies, you, you know, it's not as personal. Yeah. There is that personal thing, but I, that's what I was saying about Theodore Roosevelt. Like uh, back in 1890, when he's inking a deal to write a memoir about his time in the Dakota Badlands, he was talking to the publisher himself. Like I would talk to Max. Yeah. And that guy, you think of it in context now, it's like, oh, Putnam was actually a person who was alive once who just had this little printing press house, you know? Right, right. Max upload, does the editing in-house and does all that, and he has his own publishing thing. It's the same thing, you know? Yeah, and I find weird. it fascinating because that, that was for a few years like this huge war or a would-be war. I'm like, oh, self-publishers versus the gatekeepers. <laughs> and I'm like, there's no fucking gatekeeper. It's who you know and how much you're willing to fight for it. Right, right. Yeah. And how much you're willing to give up. How much you're willing to give up? What What are the terms of battle? You know, where the battle's going to happen? It, it's all a series of decisions you and other parties have to agree to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now that we've been doing this for like an hour and a half, you, you have a new book coming out, huh? I do. I have a book coming out <laughs> September 14th. Or whenever this premieres, you know, it's out now. I don't know when this is coming out. Um, yes, I have a new book called Standalone. Nice. What, what's the new book about? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Standalone is what if all the slasher killers you've ever watched a movie about, um, what if really there is a reason for them? Essentially, Standalone is about four guys who jump from planet from dimension to dimension versions of earth and commit heinous violent crimes laying waste to teenagers and unlucky travelers and uh ghost hunting television crews aplenty but they do it because if they didn't all of existence would wink out um they are the custodians of existence they maintain the balance of all existence until something throws a monkey wrench into the whole process. And now they are being hunted and they have to figure out what it is because if they fail, then all of existence winks out. Interesting. Yeah, that was it. I was talking with someone else and they're like, that's a bit of a big idea. And I'm like, that was me literally just trying to figure out how I can make a bad guy into a good guy without making (laughs) a bad guy. Right. Um, I said this earlier, I got the idea a few years back and it percolated. And I remember thinking, I don't know what sparked it. I think it was because I was watching the movie Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Of, and if you haven't seen the movie, basically it presupposes a place where Freddy Krueger, Mike Myers, Jason Voorhees, Chucky, they're all real killers. And everything, all the supernatural stuff about them is 
um, just kind of urban legend, but they are real killers. And this one guy, Leslie Vernon, wants to join their ranks. So this documentary crew follows him around as he prepares to launch his legacy of his first killings. And I was, and I love the movie. It is one of my favorite movies. But even in that movie, they make the villain kind of in a, into a, a character, a charismatic character, where you want to like him. He does bad things, but you want to like him. You want to kind of almost forget all the bad things. And I remember thinking, this is like 2015, 2016, maybe 2017, and I was like, but what if they're not charming? What if they are legitimately bad, but at the same time, because of circumstances, you have to root for them? Like, they're killing a lot of people and doing horrible shit, but it's a means to an end. Okay. In order to do that, whoever they're going against has to also be legitimately understandable. and empath- You have to be empathic, empath- empathetic to them as well. How do you do it? Dot, da, da, da. And I, I was thinking about this the other day and this book my two the two authors that had the biggest influence on me as a writer are jack ketchum and harlan ellison and if there was ever a story that for me married the two sensibilities it's those two Mm. because i tend to write very not not that i haven't written supernatural weird stuff i once wrote wrote a story about a a living man-eating lake um, I've written <laughs> weird shit before, but I also tend like my title novella Bones Made to Be Broken is about a woman's uh, single mother dealing with a nervous breakdown and deals with mental illness. Um, that tends to be where I go. Like even when I have the supernatural shit, it's always very grounded in the real. You know, the one ghost story I've ever written is called Survivor's Dead, and I I legitimately wrote the story from the perspective of a bystander who thinks his friend is going insane while the friend thinks he is haunted by the people he served Vietnam with. And he feels compelled to do these various tasks to do it. And he, and this, and my narrator is just watching his best friend lose his fucking mind. Um, I was kind of thinking that those kind of ways, like what's the pathos, you know, kind of thing. But in order to make the story work, I had to almost go bigger than life. I had to almost become, uh, go like very fantastic with it. Um, Adam Caesar, uh, the writer of Clown of Cornfield and um, The Summer Job and Trisman, he's a great writer. Um, he was talking about the book and he said, this is science fiction. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's true. I can't argue with that. I wrote it as a horror novel and I think of it as a horror novel, but it's, it, you know, it deals with multiple, it deals with um, quantum mechanics in a very layman's way because I am not science minded. Um <laughs> And so, like, if someone said, oh, it's science fiction, I can't argue with it. I think it's science fiction that a horror fan would appreciate. I think most science fiction fans would be, like, ha- like hardcore, like, they could, they, they've they read all of, uh, you know, John Scalzi, I guess, for lack of a better term, because that's the only science fiction writer I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Heinlein, uh, I, who's read every Heinlein novel, would be like, this isn't science fiction. This yeah, is shit. Yeah. But um, it's science fiction for a horror fan, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's your event horizon. <laughs> Maybe. I, and that, it, that uh, wow, I'm going to use that. Uh, <laughs> I Actually, no, I can't because fucking Paul W.S. Anderson. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Ruined fucking Resident Evil. Um, yeah, it, it's the part. Standalone is the perfect marriage between Paul Thomas Anderson and Paul W.S. A- w. Anderson, but written 
by Paul Michael Anderson. There you uh, go. It's Magnolia by way of Resident Evil Afterlife. Uh, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> we just did that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a thing that came out of my mouth. Um, but but the book itself is filled with, like, you know, with that in mind, has slasher tropes and a lot of pop culture references and, and, and sort of that stuff then mixed into this amalgam of sci-fi slash um, horror. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote it with an intent of it being a slasher. It I, I see it as a horror slasher. Um, I see it hopefully better than people would see movies like Pieces or uh, Bloody Birthday because those movies are dog shit. But, you know, it's not... I didn't write it to be meta like Scream or Behind the Mask, but I, I wanted to write it from the awareness of, hey, we all know slashers exist. Because um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, within the first page, I have I have my main character driving a hatchet through someone's skull. I'm like, that's fun. <laughs> um, but then I have that man, I have that main, same main character absolutely destroyed and broken by the end of the story. And that's fun, too. Yeah, um, yeah. I tried, you know, and so it's I imagine it with that type of story, it might be very easy to throw a bunch of Easter eggs into it. And I really didn't. I kind of just focused on the story. The one Easter egg I threw in that I'm conscious of, um, well, I probably threw in more. But the one I come back to is one of his one of the kills in the novel. Um, I'm a, I, I, there is a one of the deaths in one of the Friday the 13th. I forget which one because there's been a bazillion of them. But. Jason takes a guy who's in a sleeping bag and swings him around and bat and like literally slams him the body into a tra- a tree trunk, and you just hear the splat inside. And you can just imagine how just like destroyed the body is inside the bag. So I made sure I included that because that was always the most gnarly death to me. I was like, oh my god, because <laughs> they don't. Nice. I don't. I I'm trying to remember. I saw it when I was a kid. I I can't remember if they actually show the broken body. I think they probably just show like a stunned dead face so you know the guy's dead, but they don't show like the damage done within the bag. I always thought that was so fucking gnarly. Um, well, because that's the safest place, right? You get underneath the covers and then the monsters can't get you. And then the monster got you. Um, <laughs> so I liked, so I included that in there. But, it, you know, it was, it, like I said, I, I think of it as a horror novel, but when Adam Caesar said it was like, this is science fiction, I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, world jumping, I guess you get that, you know, multiverse, like say quantum mechanic stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it any any self-respecting sci-fi fan who is like, I am a science fiction aficionado would probably look at this and like the fuck you think you're doing. <laughs> um, and I'd be like, I don't know, man. Don't just just like the book. Because um, like I said, I it was but I had to think of a way that its own interior logic made sense to me. And that was the way I made it work. Like, hey, OK, I have these bad guys, but I want to make them the main characters of my story, but I don't want to make them charming. Uh, right. <laughs> How do I do that? Um, <laughs> how do I make them empathetic and still bad? Because, um, like, in something like Scream, no one ever remembers the main kill, the main character's name, the killer's name. They know him as Ghostface, maybe. Um, or in Behind the Mask, Leslie Vernon, he's still a villain. You, you like, you like him for the first two thirds of the movie, but when he becomes a villain, you have to, and he has to be put down. You don't be like, oh, I hope he makes it. No, you want to be put down. Yeah. Well, I had to make my slasher killers like you hope they don't get put down. 
and that's a really weird sentence to say, but that's the way that was my that was my motivation. Okay, I need to make these guys evil. I uh, but I need you to root for them. How right. do I do? Again, in the end, they save us all. Yeah, uh, and, um, purely by accident. Um, <laughs> you were asking earlier if I outline or if I, you know, kind of pants it. No, that is a perfect example of me just pa- figuring it out as I wrote it. Because uh, I, when I first came up with the idea, I'm asking people, "Have you heard of this? Because this sounds like something this this that sh- that has to exist already." And people are like, "No." Um, I was literally working on like, okay, how can I do this? And I'll write like this and I'll write like that. Um, but it also led me to writing myself in a corner. So like, okay, I need to move this here and I need to put this here and I'm going to need this character here as I'm writing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The most Easter eggs, like in a movie and a story like that, it, like I said, it feels like it's prone to Easter eggs. There's a pre-order going with the book, like the first 350 pre-orders, they'll get a set of trading cards um, I think we're roughly the same age. Do you remember back in the '90s, Marvel Comics used to put out trading cards of their characters? Mm-hmm. Okay, I when Max and the publishing house came to me and it's like, well, what kind of little nifty thing can we do with this? I was like, what if we did trading cards of like various slasher killers that are used within the story or referenced within the story? And they're like, we could do that. So, like, I had to then come up with the backstories of all these slasher killers, and I just filled it full of, like, Easter eggs. I, I filled, like, I used the body count of the, all the Nightmare on Elm Streets for one of my characters, just because it was easier than just making up a number. Um, <laughs> I used the pseudonym of a friend of mine as the actor who played one of the slasher killers in one of the other movies, and, you know, I, I just... That I was like, all right, I didn't do Easter eggs anywhere else. I'm going to do a ton of Easter eggs here. That's cool. Yeah, I got. I have my order in, so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting the cards. I got and, I, and the book. Oh, I well, I hope. Um, I got my cards. They sent me um, I caught a set of the cards, and I'm like, I I have my own trading cards. <laughs> this is almost better than writing the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gonna get a little frame, a little shadow box, or something. All right. Fuck the book. I got cards. <laughs> no, even the book, like they really, uh, per- perpetual max and perpetual motion machine, Lori too. Um, she, he runs it with her. Um, they really want to like in my book plate looks like those old mom and pop movie rental store video cards, like membership cards. And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. So I got to sign a bunch of movie rental store cards. Cool. Very cool. And uh, you also there's a companion story that's available as well. Yes, yeah, it goes um, along with this. Um, about halfway through writing the book, I realized, like I said, there's a lot of ideas going on there. It's a whole thing, and since I tend to write from the perspective of the character trying to figure things out, like I can't have him just selling, knowing all these things. I have to have some. I had to have someone there who would understand what's going on. So a few years back, right after um, Bones, my first book came out, that when your first book comes out, it's when people start inviting you to things like, hey, would you like to write a story for this? And I'll be like, yes, how much are you paying? And um, <laughs> and they'd be like, this much. And I'll be like, I can do that. Um, someone, uh, Eddie Generous, who runs Unnerving, uh, he runs Unnerving Magazine and then Unnerving Publishing, I guess, Unnerving Press or whatever it's called. He was like, hey, I 
I would really love to run a story by you. I was like, cool. And he's like, what do you have? I was like, I have this story about a guy who um, wishes that that his daughter never feels any pain. So he feels all the pain she would go through in life. And I thought and and he was and because I my daughter was four or five at the time, six at the time because it was 2017. So that was where my head was at. So he's like, cool, write it. And so I wrote this story called The One Thing I Wish For You about a father who, when asked, like, hey, what this new father, he's like, if you could take away all your daughter's pain, but you would feel it, would you do it? And he does it. And the guy who gives him that wish is this guy in a black suit. And I don't really give him a name, but he's otherworldly. He's, you know, he's not from around here. And I was like, hey, I could put him in the book. He would know what's going on, but not quite. So there's another story I wrote, and I actually just put the uh, the guys over at Ink Heist just put it up. It's called um, "Everything Feels Wrong Without You." Um, this is not a bonus story in the book, but it's it's related, um, and it's about a guy who keeps repeating the same hour, but it's a different type of reality. Like things are subtly changed, and he's vaguely aware that things aren't way they used to be until he becomes aware that until he until he realizes that his best friend who's a film archivist is actually the guardian of every single decision in life you will ever make hmm. and basically it's another quantum mechanics type thing um his friend marty is in charge he is the guardian of all decisions everyone ever will make if you the life you live because you had a roast beef sandwich on tuesday and the life you lived if you had a turkey sandwich on Tuesday. Um, and I realized I had these two characters in these stories. And I'm like, oh, they could serve as like anchors. So I put them in the story and it took off because that 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 barreled my main character into the climax. But when Max was accepting the novella, I was like, all right, I kind of I like these characters and I want people to know where they come from because I brought them back. I've never done that before with other stories. I was like, hey, can we run this one story? Because it's the older of the two. And he was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, yay! Because I, re- I was, it was one of the <laughs> first stories I wrote after um, Bones Are Made Broken was published. And I was really pleased with it because I hadn't written about fathers very often. Um, I hadn't written about fathers at all up until that point, despite being a father. I'd written about moms and just being a parent in general um, because I was raised by a single mom. So it was my first story of writing as from a dad's perspective, and I really liked it. So I was like, I want people to see this so they can see that, hey, my character shows up in other places. Plus, it made the book a little bigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's really cool. And and uh, which where, where can they find that companion story? Um, the original story appear, originally appeared in Unnerving Number 3, Unnerving Magazine Number 3. Okay. Yeah. And the cool. and the other story, the other it's not a companion story. Well, if things work out the way I think they're going to work out, it might be a companion story to another edition. Um, the other story is called "Everything Feels Wrong Without You," which you can read for free right now over at Ink Heist. Nice, cool, very cool. I think that's actually where I saw it, or it must have been. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, that's one of the two characters that kind of make an appearance in standalone. They're like supporting characters, but they kind of serve as an anchor to make things make sense for everyone. Sure. Cool. Very cool. 
Well, I am excitedly looking forward to getting your book. I just finished a mammoth tome. Took me like two months to read, three months to read. So um, I am free. I'm actually looking at a, I got ordered a Call of Cthulhu Dark Ages manual. So I've been perusing that as we may uh, play a couple of games of that. But I'm I'm looking forward to delving into some new stuff. Excellent, man. Hope you like it. Yeah. I, I expect that I shall. <laughs> Well, good. Damn it. There'll be links in the in the show notes for everything. We'll have links out to your stuff, your blog and all that stuff. But is there anything else that you want to throw out? Anything else you want to promote? Anything else that's going on before we uh, cut you loose? Ah, I can't think of anything, but that's because I've been working all day, so I'm a little fried. Um, trying to think. Um, book coming out. No, because all the other all the other stuff that's going to be coming out, it's not going to be coming out for like a year. So, like, it's too early to promote that shit. Hey, remember this anthology? I'll be out in twenty twenty one. No one cares. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we can maybe promote that you're going to be at Necronomicon in twenty twenty. I twenty twenty one. I have not been officially invited, so I don't know. People, have, like I said, people have threatened to be like, "We're going to have you there." I'm like, I, I, "Okay, I, I don't know." <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't. It always feels weird when I do stuff like that. Um, if we do cons next year, I'll definitely. I know I'll be at Scares of Care. I know I'll be at Necon, and I know I'll be at Confluence. Um, I don't know about anything else. <laughs> cool. Well, if people are in those areas and those cons are local, you can take your new book standalone. You can uh, go and have it signed. Yeah. I mean, if you're a pre-order, you'll probably already have a signed copy. But you know, whatevs. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you get it signed Some in sign. person. I don't know. You sign the other side. <laughs> I, well, it's funny because I have a book by John Skip. He was one of the original um, uh, Splatterpunks, and he. I have a book of his called "The Long Last Call." It's a rare, it's a limited edition um, hardcover, and it's he signed it twice for me. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and, I've, and I, every time and I, I've told him, every time we meet up and hang out, I'm going to have him sign the book again. Because I, 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 so I look forward to having that book like signed like five times. <sighs> it's funny you say that. I was at, um, I met uh, Charles DeLint a couple of years ago. There was a big, there, there's Tucson Festival books they do every year, and he was here. And I was like, oh, fantastic! I'm, I have to go. So I went. I stood in line. I talked to him for a little while. We went out to lunch. And there was a woman who was there and she brought a book. I don't remember which one it was. It doesn't really matter. But every time she sees him, she brings the book and he signs it and dates it. So she had like five or six signatures. That's of awesome. From, you know, all these different years. So I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah. I, I never thought that. I'm like, shit, how many books can I bring? And he's not going to be mad, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> And when I was at Necro last year, I brought a couple of books with me, but I'm like, shit, I'm going to buy a bunch of books while I'm here. Like, I, I don't want to bring an empty suitcase to a convention. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that guy, but like, jeez, I got to oh, bring no. some of this stuff. Oh, no. When I'm at cons, like when I go scares of care, I go with the deliberate intent of buying books. Like, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, la- yeah, it was last year. I think I bought like 13, 14 books. Because uh, and as I save up for it, like I'm gonna put some money aside. This is my spending cash. I'm gonna go have some fun. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, it's nothing else, especially if the authors are there. You know that money is going directly to the author. Exactly. It doesn't. You don't have to worry about like royalty cuts and things like that, or revenue channels or stuff like that. Like it's, hey, fifteen bucks. There you go, fifteen bucks in that author's pocket. So I always love doing that. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's the best. And then, and then, if you're lucky, you go out and you grab a beer after. Yeah, yeah, I did that. Uh, my first year at Scares. This is twenty. I think it was twenty seventeen actually. And uh, I knew a few people. I knew like John Bowden, Jack, Jacob Haddon, th- uh, things like that. Um, but I didn't know many people. I knew of people. Like Joe Lansdale was there that year. John Skip was there that year. Wrath James White was there that year. And I was just hanging out, walking by, and I was talking with Skip. And he was like, I'm hungry. You want to go out to lunch? And so we all went out to lunch. And I was like, this is bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely what, cool. And – you know, if you've ever seen Wrath James White, he's an extreme horror writer, but he's also six seven, oh, um, and he's and he's a former uh, prize fighter, and he and I got him, John Skip, and this um, author named S. G. Murphy in my little Pontiac. I was driving a Pontiac Vibe at the time, <laughs> and I was just like, "How?" And <laughs> <laughs> Ass dragon on the ground. <laughs> I, I, I think we strapped Skip to the roof. Um, like Mike Huckabee's dog. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely cool. Well, I, yeah. I hope you're able to make it out. I, I hope you get that that uh, invite and uh, we get to uh, hang out and grab a beer at Necro. But uh, if not, this was this was a blast. I'm so glad that you came on. I had uh, an abs- It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, man, it was great. Thanks for having me on, John. Absolutely. And when the, the book comes out, uh, you know, in a year or so from now, uh, look me up. All right, then. (laughs) Cool. I want to thank everybody for checking this out, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Hey, everybody. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you hear and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. There are three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks, everybody, for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.